Hey, happy Bill of Rights Day. Yes, today, December 15th, commemorates the day in 1791 when the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution were officially ratified. So today, on Categorical Imperatives, I thought the perfect way to celebrate Bill of Rights Day was to do an episode all about why absolutely everything you think you know about the first 10 amendments is total bullshit, and why what you think of as the Bill of Rights is in fact a total fabrication. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am Lockie in the Brill, and I want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Uh, if you are new to the program, I want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we will be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events about law, politics, and culture. And today, uh, as I alluded to, we are going to be having a discussion about the first 10 amendments that is going to overturn absolutely everything that you have been brought up to believe about them in school and in popular culture. And I know it goes against everything you were taught to believe because it goes against what everybody was taught. And that is because it is really only very recent research uh, into this topic that has completely rewritten our historical and our legal understanding of this part of the Constitution. It's really only been within the last five years that the research on this has begun to permeate the universities uh, and the law schools. And so, this is all really thanks to the work of two stellar researchers. The first uh, is historian Pauline Myers, uh, who started noticing less than 10 years ago that she would find virtually no evidence whatsoever before World War II of people referring to the first 10 amendments as the Bill of Rights. Uh, unfortunately, Pauline Myers uh, passed away a few years ago, uh, but her research has been picked up by a fantastic lawyer and legal scholar, a guy named uh, Jared Maglioka, and uh, his work is what has really begun to give us a full picture of why this is and what the true history of these Ten Amendments is. So, today, uh, on the first part of a two-part series of Categorical Imperatives, I am going to be condensing down uh, the work of these two fantastic scholars into a cohesive narrative about the true history of the first Ten Amendments and its relation to any notion of a Bill of Rights, so to speak. So, the Bill of Rights, uh, of course, is considered a sacred part of our Constitution, but why do we use this term to describe the first set of amendments? A legal claim is not stronger if its guarantee falls within the Bill of Rights as opposed to, say, uh, the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment or a part of Article 1. Moreover, the Supreme Court has repeatedly declined to hold that a right in the Bill of Rights is, if so facto, a fundamental right. Hardly anyone now thinks that the Third Amendment carries as much weight as the First Amendment. And what is the point of saying that all of these provisions are part of a Bill of Rights when the text ratified in 1791 does not actually ever use that phrase? Well, today... I will argue that the use of the term Bill of Rights to describe the first set of constitutional amendments emerged 
long after the founding as a justification for the expanse of federal power at home and abroad. In making this claim, I will challenge two common misconceptions about the Bill of Rights. Uh, one is the first one that we'll be dealing with mostly today, and that is that the first set of amendments was known by that name from the start. This is just simply not true. James Madison never said what was ratified in the amendments in 1791 was a Bill of Rights. In fact, that label was not widely used for these provisions until well after 1900. The second fallacy is that the Bill of Rights was a term of art designed to limit government through judicial review. Now, this is our modern understanding of the Bill of Rights. The idea, however, has not become part of our uh, constitutional grammar until after World War II. During the ratification debates on the Constitution, some anti-federalists had protested that adding a Bill of Rights to the proposed Constitution was tantamount to throwing a tub to a whale, by which they meant uh, that such a text would just be a decoy that would legitimate federal power. And in practice, this is what calling the 1791 Amendments the Bill of Rights mostly did when the label was used prior to 1945. Now, the first move in this direction came during Reconstruction, when a few members of Congress, uh, especially John Bingham, uh, used the term of art uh, because he wanted to overturn Barron versus Baltimore and extend the first set of amendments to these states. By calling that list the Bill of Rights, Bingham was trying to persuade his colleagues that this expansion of national power was a valid exception to states' rights. Now, while Bingham did not change either the name or the scope of the amendments during uh, that era, both aspects began to assume their modern form after the Spanish-American War. Critics of imperialism, most notably William Jennings Bryan, argued that our democracy would not endure if we withheld the Bill of Rights from the Philippines. President William McKinley and Congress answered that challenge by extending part of the first set of amendments uh, in what was later called the Philippine Bill of Rights. Now, this watered-down version of our original uh, was still vital in easing concerns about unprecedented federal control over territories that would never be admitted as states. Now, the New Deal in World War II elevated the Bill of Rights to its present iconic status, and in an effort to increase national power still further, uh, Liberals uh, were very fond of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights uh, that sought to grant positive rights such as health care and education. But FDR also brandished the first Bill of Rights to deflect charges that the growth of the welfare state threatened individual liberty. The attack uh, was false, the president explained in one of his early fireside chats, because, as he said, the gold standard of liberty was the Bill of Rights, and those freedoms were not being infringed. Roosevelt also stressed the Bill of Rights to distinguish the inaction on economic reform could lead to a kind of domestic tyranny that would destroy the Bill of Rights. Later on, the president used uh, this to contrast uh, used this contrast to argue that Nazism presented a threat to the required bold federal action. And this was talking about things such as military conscription in peacetime. 
Now, indeed, a week after Hitler declared war on America, FDR transformed the Bill of Rights into a patriotic emblem in an address that attacked the Fuhrer by name and justified the war effort. In this instance, as in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War, the influence of foreign affairs on constitutional law comes into focus in a way that most uh, interpretive theories do not fully capture. So, uh, we're going to be breaking this down into four parts. I'll be doing part one and part two today. And in part one, we will explain the original understanding of a Bill of Rights and look at what the first set of amendments uh, was not considered, why it was not considered to be a Bill of Rights at the founding. And part two, we will be discussing how the term was first advanced to legitimate the growth of federal power through incorporation. And in uh, part three and four tomorrow, uh, part three will be assessing how the Bill of Rights was wielded by President Roosevelt to justify the welfare state and to meet the challenge presented by Nazi Germany. And part four, we will be concluding by tracing the evolution of the Bill of Rights to its present role as a tool, as a tool for supporting judicial review. All right, now we are going to start with part one, and this is the original understanding of a Bill of Rights. Uh, this part reviews the original understanding of the Bill of Rights. Given the importance of the phrase in American constitutionalism, it is rather surprising that so little has been written on that subject. Uh, we must explain that the first set of amendments was rarely called a Bill of Rights in the 18th and 19th centuries, to grasp why and how that parlance changed, uh, part of the answer is that the term was reversed, uh, except by Alexander Hamilton, of course, for a text um, that appeared at the front of a constitution and made sweeping claims about natural rights and popular sovereignty, neither of which were attributes of the first set of amendments. Most important of all, no purpose was served by using the term Bill of Rights to describe what was ratified in 1791 as there was for the Declaration of Rights uh, drafted by the Continental Congress or for the State Bills of Rights written during the Revolution or uh, for most of the Anti-Federalists seeking to defeat the Constitution. So, first section is a puzzling omission. Let us begin with the fact that it is hard to believe that there is little evidence that the first set of amendments was ever called a Bill of Rights or a Declaration of Rights. Uh, it wasn't called a Bill of Rights, much less the Bill of Rights, uh, when Congress proposed the text in 1789 or when it was ratified in 1791. Instead, almost everyone referred to the amendments to the Constitution. Nobody in the first Congress described uh, what was sent to the states as a Bill of Rights. Nobody in the ratifying state legislatures used that term for the amendments, nor did President Washington. Now, I do not claim that those magic words were never used to describe the first set of amendments, uh, as Jefferson did write one letter in 1792 in which he stated, My objections to the Constitution was that it wanted a Bill of Rights securing freedom of religion, freedom of the press, 
freedom from standing armies and a trial by jury. The sense of America has approved my objections and added a bill of rights. But this is the only such statement that I can find, uh, which means that I am sure this was not a common usage then. The absence of references to the Bill of Rights in the 1790s is telling because the issue of whether the Constitution should have a Bill of Rights was hotly debated during the ratification debates of the original text. Now, if the issue had not been raised at the time, then one might not attribute much significance to the fact that the people did not call the first set of amendments a Bill of Rights. But we know that the Anti-Federalists protested at length about the need for a Bill of Rights, and New York, North Carolina, and Virginia proposed the addition of a Bill of Rights at the conclusion of their ratifying conventions. Why, then, did most people not consider what was ratified a Bill of Rights? One place to look for an answer is in the state bills of rights uh, of that era. Six states had self-described bills of rights or declarations of rights in 1791. These included Maryland, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Vermont, and Virginia. Now, one trait that all but one of these bills of rights shared was that they came right before or after a preamble. The first set of amendments, by contrast, appeared at the end of the Constitution, mainly because Roger Sherman argued that the proposed uh, argued that what was proposed in 1787 should be kept apart from any future changes. The other characteristic that stands out uh, in the state bills of rights was that they made abstract claims about government. For example, when we look at Virginia's Declaration of Rights, it stated. All men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights of which when they enter into a state of society, they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty and the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. The statement and others of a similar bent uh, in the Virginia Declaration were widely admired and copied by both Jefferson in drafting the Declaration of Independence and by the other uh, state bills of rights. The first set of amendments, of course, does not make these sorts of claims. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state is the only exception, but the rest of what we consider the Bill of Rights consists of specific rules uh, broad standards, or rules of construction. Now, the observation that the first set of amendments did not look like a state bill of rights at the time does not, of course, prove that those distinctions were meaningful, but Alexander Hamilton's essay, Defending the Constitution Against the Charge uh, that, the proposed, uh, that the Proposal Did Not Include a Bill of Rights, suggests that these differences did matter. In Federalist 84, uh, presents Hamilton's famous argument that a Bill of Rights was dangerous because enumerating liberties implied that a new government has powers that were not enumerated. But his essay also criticized the view that a Bill of Rights must come near the start of a constitution. Hamilton said 
the proposed constitution is itself, in every rational sense, and to every useful purpose a bill of rights. The text accomplished what he saw as the two important objectives of a bill of rights, which were to declare uh, and specify the political privileges of the citizens in the structure and administration of the government, and to define certain immunities and modes of proceeding which are relative to personal and private concerns, and it certainly uh, must be intimated, uh, Hamilton stated, uh, what mode is observed as to the order of declaring the rights of citizens if they uh, are to be found in any part of the instrument which establishes the government. He also ridiculed the practice of putting abstract ideas about government into a Bill of Rights. Uh, again, in Federalist 84, he argued that uh, the preamble, which was a better recognition of popular rights than volumes of those aphorisms which make the principal figure in the, uh, several of our state bills of rights, and which would sound very much uh, in a treatise of ethics than in a constitution of government, and in dismissing the view that a bill of rights was needed to have those aphorisms, Hamilton was implying that this was the expectation. Likewise, when Madison proposed the first set of amendments, he indicated that these uh, two formal aspects of state bills of rights were uh, relevant. He described the first part of his package as follows. The government is instituted and ought to be exercised for the benefit of the people, which consists in the enjoyment of life and liberty and the right of acquiring and using property and uh, generally of pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety, and that the government has an indubitable, inalienable, and indefeasible right to reform or change their government whenever uh, it is found adverse or inadequate to the purpose of its institution. So after reading his other amendments, including the draft which was ultimately ratified by the states, Madison said that the first of these amendments relates to what might be called a Bill of Rights. Uh, in other words, only the part just quoted was in his view a Bill of Rights. Madison proposed the Bill of Rights uh, rather than uh, one now attributed to him. Uh, he copied a state Bill of Rights by uh, coming at the state of the Constitution and by making general statements about natural rights and popular sovereignty. His language drew on the Virginia Declaration of Rights, and like Hamilton, he used that term prefix in connection uh, with the prevailing understanding of a Bill of Rights. In committee, Madison's prefix was whittled down to just one phrase uh, that preceded the preamble. Government being intended for the benefit of the people and the rightful establishment thereof being derived from that authority alone. The House of Representatives later struck that part of Madison's draft and turned the first set of amendments into a suffix uh, with virtually no rhetorical flourishes, and in so doing, the first Congress kept the Constitution free of a Bill of Rights, as many understood the term, in 1791.
Now we look at the very purpose of a Bill of Rights. Formalities aside, the first set of amendments was not called a Bill of Rights after the founding because there was no reason to do so. The formal part of any of, of my explanation uh, is incomplete because the form of a Bill of Rights changed substantially in the 1770s and therefore it is hard to say that the meaning of that term was fixed. The English Bill of Rights of 1689, for example, was framed as an indictment of King James I in support of the Glorious Revolution, though this model was followed by the Declaration of Independence, State Bills of Rights, and avoided these accusations. Likewise, we pay almost no attention to the formal traits that Hamilton and Madison noted in their discussions of a Bill of Rights. Why would they have cared so much about uh, then when their predecessors and their remote ancestors had cared so little? A more pragmatic explanation is that Americans identify texts as bills of rights to achieve a crucial political objective. And when the First Continental Congress issued its Declaration of Rights and Grievances in 1774, that term was chosen to add a legitimacy to its protest about British policy by invoking the precedent in the English Declaration of Rights of 1689, which was later enacted by Parliament as the Bill of Rights. When the states declared independence from the Crown, putting a declaration uh, or Bill of Rights in their constitution was a way of justifying secession by linking their Revolutionary Act to the Glorious Revolution. And when Anti-Federalists attacked the Constitution for not having a Bill of Rights, using that phrase was an effective way of crystallizing fears that the federal government was too powerful. Once independence was achieved and the Constitution was ratified, there was no overarching rationale for saying that the 1791 Amendments constituted a Bill of Rights. Such a rationale could have been found in subsequent constitutional controversies over the Alien and Sedition Acts, slavery, and other topics. But that did not happen until reformers became interested in expanding the first set of amendments to include the actions of state governments. Alright, Part 2, Incorporation. Now this part shows how the Bill of Rights first emerged through the efforts of those who advocated the application of the initial set of amendments to the states. Faced with objections grounded in states' rights, supporters of extending these provisions attempted to raise their status by calling them a Bill of Rights. While the rhetoric did not bear fruit until the mid-20th century, these efforts, especially uh, the speeches of John Bingham during the 39th Congress, laid the foundations of the subsequent canonization of the Bill of Rights and the concomitant expansion of federal power. Section 1, Barron versus Baltimore. Until the 1830s, there was almost no discussion on the first set of amendments, but in 1833, the Supreme Court decided uh, in Barron and revealed that the consensus on a Bill of Rights had not changed much from Hamilton and Madison's day. Barron involved a claim that the takings clause applied to the states. 
but Chief Justice John Marshall held for a unanimous court that the first set of amendments applied only to the federal government. A modern reader might be surprised to learn that the Chief Justice's opinion never called those amendments a Bill of Rights. He said only that, in almost every convention by which the Constitution was adopted, amendments to guard against the abuse of power were recommended. In compliance with a sentiment thus generally expressed to quiet fears and uh, thus extensively entertained, amendments were proposed by the required majority in Congress and adopted by the states. Barron went on to say that in Article 1, Section 9, uh, that enumerated in the nature of a Bill of Rights, the limitations intended to be imposed on the powers of the general government. So, in other words, the leading antebellum case on the Bill of Rights uh, called another part of the Constitution something like a Bill of Rights. So, why did Barron say that Article 1, Section 9 uh, was in the nature of a Bill of Rights rather than a Bill of Rights? One possible answer is that the court, like most of the framers, believed that a constitutional Bill of Rights was limited to a list that came near the start of a text and made abstract statements about natural rights and popular rule. Since no section of the Constitution had these traits, the, uh, the most one could say about some part of the text was that it was sort of a Bill of Rights, meaning that the formalities were absent while the substance was present. A way of expressing this idea was through the, uh, you know, quote, in the nature of language that was used. This was how almost every uh, case discussed a Bill of Rights in connection with the first set of amendments, on a rare occasion when they even did that much. This is until the 1890s. Uh, in, in effect, this was the position that Hamilton had advanced in Federalist 84, which was that a constitution could have provisions in favor of particular privileges and rights, which in substance amount to a Bill of Rights without having that title. Now, the surprising fact is, though, uh, is that the portion of Article 1 was not the first eight or ten amendments. But it was Article 1, Section 9 that was deemed the closest thing to a pillar of rights in the Constitution. The first Supreme Court's reference to what we call a Bill of Rights in the 1840s by an attorney uh, who mentioned that the amendments to the Constitution of the United States, commonly called the Bill of Rights, at first blush, um, this quote supports the idea that the 1791 amendments were widely viewed as a Bill of Rights by then, but upon closer inspection, though, the ulterior motive emerges. Uh, the council was trying unsuccessfully to persuade the court that Barron's dicta was too broad and that the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment should apply to these states. The full statement reads, I am aware that it has been decided by this court in the case of Barron versus the city of Baltimore that the amendments to the Constitution of the United States commonly called the Bill of Rights were simply limitations of the power of the general government and had no effect upon a state government. 
but as a decision, as a recent one and stands alone, I trust the court will uh, attend to me while I submit a few remarks upon a question so important and interesting. So there is no evidence that Americans commonly describe the first set of amendments as the Bill of Rights in 1840, but the deeper point is that counsel probably chose that term because he thought that would increase the chance that the justices would extend the scope of the due process clause. A powerful reply to the argument that the states should have exclusive jurisdiction over the topics covered by the first set of amendments is to say, as Justice Justice Hugo Black once did say that he never believed that under the guise of federalism, the states should be able to experiment with the protections afforded our citizens through the Bill of Rights. Put another way, the Bill of Rights can trump states' rights in constitutional arguments, but that presupposes that the 1791 amendments are in fact a Bill of Rights. Alright, Reconstruction. The 39th Congress first proposed the 14th Amendment uh, and saw a few more statements linking the first set of amendments to the Bill of Rights in support of incorporation. Uh, Jacob Howard uh, was the floor manager of the 14th Amendment in the Senate, and he said that the first eight amendments stand as a Bill of Rights in the Constitution and that Section 1 made these rights applicable to the states. Representative Robert Hill said in the House debate that the amendments to the Constitution, numbered from 1 to 10, were a Bill of Rights. James Wilson of Iowa chimed in that the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment was in a Bill of Rights. And Congressman William Lawrence said that uh, the clause was in a Bill of Rights to the National Constitution. Now, John Bingham was the most important person who called the first set of amendments the Bill of Rights as he drafted Section 1 of the 14th Amendment and had argued that those clauses should apply to the actions of state governments. In 1862, Bingham told the House of Representatives that the Fifth Amendment was a, was a section of a Bill of Rights. And in 1866, he used that term frequently uh, at one point, uh, stating that the 14th Amendment was a remedy for the want of power to enforce in the United States courts the Bills of Rights under the Articles of Amendments to the Constitution. Indeed, one of Bingham's speeches was issued uh, as a pamphlet entitled One Country, One Constitution, and One People. Uh, it was a speech in honor of John Bingham of Ohio in the House of Representatives on February 28, 1866, in support of the proposed amendment to enforce the Bill of Rights. Bingham, said, uh, Bingham and his allies said that they were not using the term Bill of Rights in a Madisonian sense. They did not care about where the first set of amendments was located in the text or if it was prefaced by something. John Locke might have written. Instead, they thought that the 1791 amendments protected fundamental rights in the light of the contest over slavery uh, and used the phrase for a functional purpose of convincing their colleagues that the balance of federalism should be reset. 
Bingham was a candy politician, and he contended that the states were always morally obligated to respect these amendments. Therefore, extending the Bill of Rights to these states would not take away from any state any right that belongs to it, uh, or from any citizen of any state any right that belongs to him under the Constitution. Not surprisingly, Critics of the 14th Amendment rejected the substance of incorporation and Bingham's rhetoric about the Bill of Rights, sticking with the traditional description of the initial set of amendments as limitations upon the powers of Congress or clauses of the Constitution. And back to the Supreme Court. Like much of Reconstruction, the redefinition in the Bill of Rights fizzled during the 1870s and the 1880s. When the court first interpreted the 14th Amendment, in the Slaughterhouse case, the majority opinion supplied this background. Twelve articles of amendment were added to the federal constitution soon after the original organization of the government uh, under it in 1789. There was no discussion of the Bill of Rights. Yet three years later, the court said one of the objections most seriously used against the new constitution by those who opposed its ratification by the states was that it contained no formal Bill of Rights. Feelings on this subject, the court continues, led to the adoption of the first ten amendments to that instrument at one time, shortly after the government was organized. Once again, though, the court did not call them the Bill of Rights. And when a lawyer told the justices in 1887 that the first set of amendments com uh, comprised a declaration of rights that should extend to the states, the court replied in the opinion by Justice, uh, Chief Justice Waite that the first 10 articles uh, of amendment were not intended to limit the power of state governments. In 1900, the court finally addressed the claim that the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment extended the first set of amendments to these states. But Maxwell v. Dow rejected that argument and spoke only of the first ten amendments or of the first eight amendments. In dissent, Justice Harland called the first set of amendments the Bill of Rights four times and said that after the first Congress, these amendments have ever since been regarded as the National Bill of Rights. The same distinction was presented when the court reaffirmed Maxwell eight years later, while Justice uh, Harlan continued to champion the Bill of Rights in dissent, the court responded with only a grudging comment on the rights which are enumerated in the first eight articles of the Amendment to the Federal Constitution, sometimes called a Federal Bill of Rights. But sometimes? This was a far cry from a document that is now venerated at the National Archives. What is important to note here, though, is that the Court's unwillingness to call the 1791 Amendments a Bill of Rights was motivated by its resistance to incorporation rather than any formal view of what a Bill of Rights was. And I say that in part because when another uh, attempt to increase federal power was made uh, at around the same time that leaned on the first set of amendments, it was in a more acceptable way, and the justices were happy to then embrace that term. 
All right, that is where I am going to leave things for today. I will be back tomorrow with a part two of this series where we will be talking about the Bill of Rights as it relates to the New Deal and World War II, and then our modern notion of the Bill of Rights as a form of judicial review. So uh, I want to thank you all for joining me here on Categorical Imperatives. Uh, and if you like the show, uh, if you want to take a moment and subscribe to the channel, I would sure appreciate it. Uh, and uh, if you want to smash that like button or leave me a comment, I would appreciate that. And then if you like this episode, what I ask you to do is you just take a minute and think of one person you know who would also like this episode and just uh, pass it on to them. Uh, share the show with them that way. And if you would help me grow the channel that way, I would be very grateful to you all. Uh, so until tomorrow, this has been me, Lockheed Liberal, for Categorical Imperatives, talking about the Bill of Rights. Happy Bill of Rights Day, everybody. And as always, Delenda Escarthago. Carthago.